You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Midtown. What does it mean to put our hope in a God we can't see? What does it mean to walk the walk of faith? This is our sermon series, Water and Blood, Finding Rest in Jesus, Our High Priest. Peace be with you. Today's scripture reading is Hebrews 9, 1 through 11. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the first covenant also had regulations for ministry and an earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was set up, and in the first room, which is called the holy place, were the lampstand, the table, and the presentation loaves. Behind the second curtain was a tent called the most holy place. It had the gold altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, covered with gold on all sides, in which was a gold jar containing the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And the cherubim of glory were above the Ark, overshadowing the mercy seat. It is not possible to speak about these things in detail right now. With these things prepared like this, the priests enter the first room repeatedly, performing their ministry. But the high priest alone enters the second room, and he does that only once a year and never without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people, the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy places had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. This is a symbol for the present time, during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. They are physical regulations and only deal with food, drink, and various washings imposed until the time of the new order. But Christ has appeared as a high priest of these good things that have come, and the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is not of this creation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, peace be with you. All right, what a joy it is to be with you. If you are first-time guests, I wanted to say welcome. My name is Jamal. I'm one of the pastors here, and I uh, have the joy of uh, ministering on the passage that you just heard read. And um, thank you, Pastor Day, for a wonderful uh, update for all that you uh, do um, here above and beyond. Uh, not getting paid. Amen. That's Sojourn Midtown. <laughs> We appreciate you, brother. We appreciate your family. I'm also thankful for our lead ministry team, um, as well as our elders who have uh, spent a lot of time praying and thinking about this. And we're uh, confident in the Lord's uh, work here through you, through us at Sojourn Midtown. And just as we responded well to a similar challenge in 2019, that we're going to respond well to this and we're going to experience the Lord's grace in abundance. I'm going to pray and then we're going to dive into today's message. Let's pray. Lord, you are holy. Uh, There is none like you. No one can compare to you. No one is on your level. Your wisdom is incalculable, immeasurable. Your love for us goes deeper than we could ever imagine. And I pray right now, Lord, that you would speak to your people, to your body, in a way that only you can, and that you would use uh, me, but more importantly, your word to do so. Speak, Lord, even now. In Jesus' name we do pray, amen. So last night I watched a 
a basketball game with LeBron James. LeBron is in his late 30s, continuing on a hobby that he has since he was a kid. It's not cutting grass. It's pursuing his dreams as an NBA basketball player. Now, the reason I watched this game last night is because LeBron was, is 63 points away from breaking Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's all-time scoring record in the NBA. And this is a record that has lasted for three decades. It's a major feat. And once he breaks this record, once he scores the 63 points, um, which is now down to 36 after last night's game, um, he can officially become the second greatest player of all time in basketball. <laughs> MJ all day. Amen. And so out of mad respect, I'm like, let me watch Brian Brian. Let me see what he's going to do. Let me see if he can get this in one crack or how many it's going to take him to get it. And so once he passes this mark, Kareem's record would become obsolete. It will no longer stand. There will be a new record holder, LeBron James. In the same way, as we look at the book of Hebrews today, picking up in the ninth chapter, the writer of Hebrews is building on an argument that we started looking at last week. And this argument that he is speaking to his congregation, his congregation is simply the old covenant, the first covenant that was cut by God to Moses and his people has now become obsolete because there is a new covenant, a second covenant, which is through Jesus Christ. And the preacher here in Hebrews is writing to this audience and his congregation, and he is warning them. He is telling them, do not go back to the old covenant because God has cut a new covenant, and this new covenant is better. It is greater than the first covenant. In fact, if you go back to the old covenant, you are walking away from this living God himself, and you will be judged. And so today we want to just look at verses 9 through 14, and we want to talk about the ministry of the new covenant versus the ministry of the old covenant. And we want to look at how this old covenant is now obsolete because a new and better covenant in Jesus Christ has come. And in today's passage, we want to be reminded of this invitation that God is giving us through his word to worship Jesus, to worship Jesus, to adore him, to live, look to him by faith, to commune with him, to meditate on him, to, to go to him, to worship Jesus because he has won you access to God and has freed you from guilt and condemnation. And that's the sermon in a nutshell. Worship Jesus because he has won you access with God or to God, and he has come to free you from condemnation. And so as we look at this, we're going to have uh, three simple movements. The first is just going to be looking at the Old Covenant. And under the Old Covenant, we're going to look at um, what the Old Covenant has to say about the tabernacle and what the Old Co Covenant has to say about priests. And then after that, we're going to look at the New Covenant. And we're going to look at why it's so much better and why Jesus is so much better. So if you can look at your Bibles and look at uh, verse 1, we see that the preacher in Hebrews picks up and he says, Now, the first covenant also had regulations for ministry and an earthly sanctuary for a tabernacle was set up 
And in the first room, which is called the holy place, were lamps, were the lampstand and table and the presentation loaves. Behind the second curtain was a tent called the most holy place, and it had the gold altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered with gold on all sides, in which was a jar containing the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. The cherubim of glory were above the ark, overshadowing the mercy seat. It is not possible to speak about these things in detail right now. I love how he, closes, how he says that in verse 5. And the reason that he is not speaking in great detail about this is because this is largely a Jewish audience. And they were very well versed in the Old Covenant. But it's also because he wants to make sure they don't lose the point in why he sang these things. And so I want to go into these verses a, a little more in depth than he did because uh, for, for many of us, we are unfamiliar with the Old Tabernacle and the Old Covenant. But I think in understanding what he's doing and, and, and the tension that he's building, you will appreciate his argument as we uh, continue to mar matriculate through it. So he puts on display right away the tabernacle. The tabernacle set at the, the heart of Israel's camp. It was um, in functioning, uh, functioning uh, for several hundred years before the temple was built. And the tabernacle is the place where Israel understood that the palpable presence of God was. And God gave Israel, and specifically Moses, the instructions, very detailed instructions on how to build the tabernacle. In fact, I encourage you this week to go and read Exodus chapter 25 through 40. It's absolutely amazing at how detailed God was in giving instructions on the tabernacle. And what we can learn about the tabernacle, about its, its placement, about how detailed it is, I think can be summed up in two things. One is, man, that God uh, dwells in, in the midst of his people and he desires for his people to come to him. And then two is that God commands his people to come to him. He calls his people to come to him in a very specific way. Like it matters how we come to God. All right. And that's what we, we see with the, the tabernacle, that this was God's doing. He created it and he desires for his people to, to have a relationship with him, to come to him. But that when they come, they need to come on his terms, on his ground and not on their own. And so the author of Hebrews here, as he's uh, talking about the tabernacle, he's going to kind of rush past one um, uh, thing that was obvious to the average Jewish Christian. And that is, is that in order to get to the tabernacle, you have to go through the outer court. And the outer court was a very bloody scene. It is where the uh, Jewish Hebrew uh, people would come and they would bring a, an offering to the Lord. They would present it to the priest and the priest would place that bull, that goat, uh, that lamb, whatever uh, they had and whatever they could afford, the very best that they had on a uh, brazen altar and it would, they would kill that animal. And that was representative of them understanding that they understand that God is holy and that because of their sin, they deserve death. But God has made a way of escape, a way in which their sin will not be held um, uh, to their record. And that was as they looked to him by faith and as they trusted his provision that they would be forgiven for their sins. 
It's what David talks about in Psalm 51. Even as he's looking at the system of uh, that God has set up, this covenant, he said, hey, at the end of the day, it's not the bulls or the goats that you're after. It's after a, a broken spirit and a contrite heart, a heart that is pursuing you by faith. And so as they past the brazen altar, they would have uh, went to a, a bronze washing statement, uh, uh, station where the priest would have washed and got clean um, after making the sacrifices before going into the tabernacle. In the first room of the tabernacle, the tabernacle is broken into two rooms. The first room is called um, the holy place. Somebody say the holy place. The holy place. Somebody say the holy place. All right. All right. And in this room, there's different artifacts. Okay. And he mentions these artifacts. There's a lampstand. And the priests would be responsible to making sure that this lampstand, which was one gold piece, it was actually pretty detailed and magnificent. This is not, uh, this, is, <laughs> this is just a, a depiction of it, all right? Um, and this lampstand would have been lit all day, all night. And the priests were responsible to making sure that it had maximum light and that it was lighting up the room. And so he mentions this lampstand. Then he mentions the table and the presentation loaves. All right. Now, growing up, I used to read the King James Version and it used to talk about the showbread. It's the same thing. All right. And it's this table that was created in which 12 loaves were placed on the table, which represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And every Sabbath, these loaves would be replaced. Now, what's interesting about this is when you look at deities, during this time in which God has given this, uh, many uh, deities around them, people believed that they were to bring food to the deities as, a, as an offering, as a sacrifice. What's amazing about God is he tells Moses to set up this system in which these, this bread is laid out, but this bread isn't for him. This bread is a reminder to them of how he provides for them. God doesn't need them to feed him. He feeds them. And so then he moves past the table and the presentation of loaves, which would have been on a table that was, that was, that was beautiful, well-made, very detailed. Again, you can read this in Exodus 25. And then he says, behind the second curtain was a tent called the most holy place or um, also called the holies of holies. Okay. And in order to get to that section of the tent, there was a thick, beautiful, well-made curtain or veil. And it didn't have a split in the middle. <laughs> the priest didn't just like find the middle and walk through. They had to walk around it. No one could go into the holies of holies or even look into the holies of holies. That was where the high priest and the high priest alone would go once a year. And he says in the second uh, tent, he describes this. It had a gold altar of incense. Now, most theologians would note that this is not mentioned in most of the, the, the readings of the Old Testament about the tabernacles actually right in front of the veil. Um, and some is saying that here, the author of Hebrews is just making a theological, um, uh, having a, a little theological fun here because the smell of the incense would have filled up the holies of holies, which is part of the purpose. It says, and the art of the covenant covered with gold on all sides. So it's this beautiful art that was made and inside the Ark of the Covenant was a gold jar containing manna. And that manna reminded Israel that God provided for them in the wilderness. And then it says Aaron's staff that budded. 
And this staff that budded reminded Israel that God is able to bring life from things that are dead. And then you have the tablets of the covenant, which reminded Israel that God made a covenant with Moses. He has a a standard in which his people should be, be living towards. And then the cherubim of glory, which are angels, which sat on top of the Ark of Covenant, which was the lid, and they, they faced, these angels faced each other. And in between the facing of each other was an area in which the high priest once a year would come on the Day of Atonement and put uh, a sacrifice of blood there um, to uh, pay for or in order to present to God um, a sacrifice for his sins as well as the people's sins. And so the writer here is sharing this detail. And he's saying, this is what happens at the tabernacle. Second movement. Somebody say second movement. Second movement. Verse six says this. With these things prepared like this, the priests enter into the first room repeatedly. And he's just saying performing ministry. They are going into this room constantly. It's constant movement that they are making. Verse seven. But the high priest alone enters into the second room. And he does this once a year and never without blood which he offers for himself and for the sins the people have committed in ignorance. And this is talking about the high priest of Israel. And so from chapter 9, verse 1 to chapter 10, verse 18, the preacher in uh, Hebrews, starting really at chapter 4, is talking about Jesus' high priestly ministry. And now it's all coming to a climax here in chapter 9 and verse 10. And he's comparing Jesus' sacrifice and Jesus' position as high priest to earthly priests, right? So he talked about tabernacle. Now he's talking about the ministry of the priests. Now, a high priest um, would be selected once a year to represent the people of God um, before God, once a year. And it was, a, it was an honor, but it also was a dread. In fact, Israel had great traditions about how the high priest had to prepare himself um, to go into this holy place, the holies of holies. Um, They would, for a week, not be around anyone closely for fear that they would become unclean. The night before Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement, a legend has it that they would stay up all night fasting and praying. Um, They also, uh, legend has it, would have a rope around them and bells at the bottom of their garment in case they committed a sin and died in the holies of holies because they mishandled something so that they could have a way of pulling the priest out. And this all was to point to this whole setup to the holiness of God. This whole sacrificial system that God is to be at the heart of Israel's community. Israel is to come to God as he desires and delights, but they were to come on his terms. So the high priest would go into the holies of holies with blood for the errors that the people committed. Verse 8. The Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place, the holies of holies, the second part of the tabernacle, it had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. And this is an important piece. Verse 9, this is a symbol for the present time, or this was a symbol for them in their present time, during which the gifts and the sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. They are physical regulations, and they 
only deal with food, drink, and various washings and poles until the new, the time of the new order. In essence, what is the author saying here? He's saying, hey, God set this up. And during that time, uh, the Holy Spirit had not made it clear that everything that they were doing pointed them to Jesus Christ. Everything that they were doing pointed them to Jesus Christ. I mean, just think about how God set this up. Think about if you're a uh, if, if you're in Israel and you are heading to the tabernacle, you're standing in line in the outer court, and the first thing you come upon is this big altar where you have to bring a sacrifice to be slain and how bloody it, it is. And that points us back to the sacrifice that was made for Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, but it also points us forward to the sacrifice that Jesus will make on Golgotha's hill. And how he would be this unblemished sacrifice for his people. And then you would go into, if you go into the tabernacle, you see this lampstand, which would point you one day to Jesus. Who in Matthew chapter uh, uh, 16 would stand and say, I, uh, chapter 8, excuse me, John chapter 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever walks in me will never walk in darkness again. This continual lamp stand that was lit, pointed forward to Jesus and whispered his name. This incense whispered the names, uh, the, 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 whispered the name of Jesus and how he would one day perpetually intercede for his people and how his sacrifice would be a sweet aroma to God. The veil, Hebrews 10 is going to say, is representing the body of Jesus and how it will be broken on the cross. So that there would be unlimited access to the people of God, to God's presence through his sacrifice on Golgotha's hill. And that's why when Jesus said it was finished, it was finished. The Bible says that the veil split in two in the temple when Jesus gave his last breath. Everything point to, to Jesus. The high priest himself pointed to a greater high priest. In Jesus. The bread pointed and manna pointed to Jesus who provides for his people who one day stand and say, hey, 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 everybody, I am the bread of life. Whoever eats of me will never hunger again. So we see these symbols all pointing towards Jesus. That's where we get to verse 11, the new covenant ministry. It says, but Christ... But Christ, but Christ, but Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. He said, listen, you guys are going back to Torah law and, and, and making sacrifices because you're weary. You want to fit in with your uh, kinsmen who have not placed their faith and trust in Jesus. You're tired of being persecuted, tired of standing out like a sore thumb. He's saying, listen, but Christ. Don't go back to the law, but Christ, your great high priest of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. So he's going to make in verse 11 through 14, three comparisons from lesser to greater, showing why Christ is better than the tabernacle and better than the high priest. And the first is he's going to say, he's going to point to place, the physical tabernacle that Israel had 
was made with human hands and it was on the earth. When Jesus died and rose again, he ascended unto heaven and he went into heaven's tabernacle. Now, heaven's tabernacle is not going to look like the earthly tabernacle here. Um, he's not saying when we get to heaven, there's going to be like this brazen altar and then it's like move into, into this one room and then move into the second room. No, it's just saying the presence of God. When Jesus ascended unto heaven, Acts 1, Matthew 28, he went into heaven, which is this heavenly tabernacle. And he's saying Jesus' sacrifice was better. What Jesus did is better than the Old Testament because it is of heaven. It's not of the earth. It wasn't made by human hands. Second argument is he's going to make is not only that it was just not made by human hands, but he's going to compare the blood. Verse 12, and the blood he's going to compare is the blood of goats and calves to his blood. He's saying, you all are trying to go back to the old covenant and the shedding of goats and calves blood. Jesus's blood as the eternal son is greater than the blood of goats and calves. Third, he's going to make the argument for Jesus's eternal ministry. Verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, speaking of the Holy Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, cleanses our conscience from dead works so that we can serve a living God. So he points to the fact that Jesus' ministry was eternal. The ministry of the priests were daily. It was regularly. They kept having to make sacrifices over and over. So the sin of the people were ever before them because of this process of sacrifice that constantly reminded them of their sin. Jesus went to the cross and he made a once and for all sacrifice to take away those who place their faith and trust in him's sins and to deal with their past, present, and future sins. And it has eternal, eternal effects in that those who are His, they forever will belong with Him and live with Him in heaven. And so he's showing this comparison of the old covenant to the new covenant and showing that Jesus is better. Two ways of application I want to show you before we leave. The first is this. As we consider Jesus' ministry, is that access to God only comes through Jesus. Think about this. Think about what God did in the old covenant and how every single detail that he gave in Exodus and Leviticus was for a purpose, and it was good. Sometimes we talk about the law as if it was itself was somehow not from God. God gave it to people in order to make a point that he is holy. And that as a holy and perfect God, in order to commune with him, you must come to him on his terms, not on your own. But it all was pointing to Jesus Christ and what he would do for us. And the only way into The presence of the living God is through his son, Jesus Christ. He's the only way. So John 14, Jesus preached. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. No one gets into the holies of holies but coming through my veil, my broken body. 
through my resurrection. And that's why this is so problematic and people have a hard time when we talk about the exclusivity of Jesus. But understand, saying that someone can come to God in any other way than Jesus Christ is an absolute insult to God and abomination. He has made it clear through his word that the only way to him, to have a thriving relationship with him, a real relationship with a real God is through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus, even in talking to his disciples, said in Matthew 16, 13 through 16, he asked them a question. He says, listen, who do men say that I am? And they all listed different people, different prophets. And he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, through the Spirit, had this epiphany, you are the son of the living God. You are the son of God. You are the Messiah. He said, what? Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but rather my heavenly father has revealed it to you. There's only one way to God the father, and it's through Jesus Christ. And only those who have been born of the spirit of God can come to that place. So if you think you're going to get to God, by your own works or by believing that Jesus was a good teacher and a prophet and not God, you're not getting to God. And that's why the doctrine of Jehovah Witnesses is so dangerous. Jesus was not a God. Jesus was not a prophet. Jesus was not a priest. Jesus is God. He is the prophet. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. He is the great high priest. And so if you're here today and you believe that there are multiple ways to God, and as long as you're a good person, you can get to him. I want you to know that what you believe is false based upon the Bible. The Bible teaches that there is not multiple ways up the mountain. There's only one way up the mountain. And it's not you climbing the mountain. It's you getting on the back of God's only son, Jesus Christ, and allowing him to carry you up the mountain that he came down the mountain to get his people from. There are not many ways to God. There's one way to God. There's this big thing in Kemetic uh, 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 religions and, and, and uh, Hebrew Israelites and all of these uh, different cults that is teaching. It's, it's, it's works. You got to do this. You got to do, think of, you name it, Islam, Hinduism. It's all about works. The gospel is not you are accepted by God because you do something. It's the only way to be accepted by God it's through Jesus Christ who has done it all for you. Amen. Which brings us to our second point. It's not only is access to God only coming through Jesus, a, a clean conscience only comes through Jesus. I mean, this text is really getting to the conscience, it's really getting to, to guilt. And Israel, as they were making these sacrifices, they uh, those who were truly walking uh, with Yahweh and, and the Lord understood that it wasn't the sacrifice, it wasn't the sin offering, it wasn't the guilt offering itself that gave them forgiveness. It was their faith in God that as they gave these sacrifices, it pointed to that they had faith in God who takes away sin, who cleanses them from guilt. They were saved essentially by faith. That's why we see in Psalm 51, David says, listen, I would offer you a goat. I would offer you lamb. I would offer these things. But what you're after is a broken heart, broken in a contrite heart. This week I was, man, I was heavy burden. It was middle of the day. 
I was trying to get something done. It was going slower than I wanted. And I just started feeling anxious. I'm like, man, what am I feeling anxious about? And so I just paused. I went uh, to my office, put a chair uh, and sat in the chair that's right there in the middle of the office and just prayed and just said, Lord, would you help me to navigate what's going on in my heart? Because I, I'm really anxious. I really feel guilty about something right now. And I'm not sure what. So I started to journal and to kind of write down what I felt anxious about. And as I made that list, I could feel my heart uh, kind of tightening up and, and, and anxiety uh, choking me. That's what, what, literally what the word anxiety is, is to choke, right? And as I'm feeling this anxiety, I just have this moment with the Holy Spirit. I feel like the Holy Spirit just said, now look at this list and what on this list is God requiring of you? What on this list is God saying, this is what's going to make you right with me? This is what's going to make you a right father, a right husband, a, a, right, a right pastor. This is what's going to make you acceptable. And by God's grace, I kind of felt that anxiety leave as I realized that mostly everything on that list was my own standard, my own doing. And it was a sweet moment of prayer and with the Spirit. And I'm just like, wow. And the verse uh, that Jesus uh, uh, said came to my come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. But let's take that same scenario. Let's say I took out a piece of paper and I wrote down stuff that, which happens often, that I, I, I'm actually failing at. <laughs> Maybe a sin that I committed or something that's going on in my heart. God's message to me through Christ Jesus and in Christ is still the same. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. My sin had left a crimson stain. He washed me and made me white as snow. In Christ Jesus, I am beloved. I am accepted. I don't have to work to prove myself to God. I can work from love because of what Jesus did for me. I can take a deep breath and know that the God of the universe is pleased with me. He sings over me. And I can allow his grace and what he has done for me to motivate me to live and to serve him and not the other way around. Many of us are exhausted and we are living, some of us, with a false guilt like I experienced. Where it's really my own standards of doing the most and too much. And some of us, we may be living with a, a real guilt. Because of our sin, we know that we are not doing what the Lord will call us to do. And we're not loving the Lord and we're not loving other people well. The answer to that is Jesus. It's not effort that leads to acceptance. It's accepting what Jesus has done for you, marveling over it meditating on it, never allowing it to get old. The fact that we do not have to bring a bull or a goat or anything else to God, that we have been freed from our guilt and our shame, that Jesus loves us, that we are accepted, we are loved, and we can serve him out of that. To quote one theologian, Madonna <laughs> in Vogue, we're all theologians, people. We're all theologians. She says this, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and I discover myself 
as a special human being, but then I feel I am still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. Madonna here shows more self-awareness than most of us in this room. Because she's getting at a human problem, a heart problem, where we are living for the approval of others. And even though we intellectually know the gospel, many of us are living for the approval of God. And God is saying, you can get off that hamster reel of approval. Look to Jesus Christ by faith. Understand you are someone. What is true of him is true of you. You are his beloved. You are seated in heavenly places with him. He calls you his child. He calls you his saints. Allow that to free you and to live out of that. Your worst days, if you are in Christ, are as one who is justified by faith and who is loved. You have access to God. That's why Hebrews chapter 4 says, through Jesus Christ, our great high priest, we can come into his throne room boldly, and there we shall find grace and mercy in our time of need. We don't have to be shy. We don't have to be shameful. We don't have to be scared when we go into the presence of God and, and ask for forgiveness because we fell short. No, God rejoices when we come to him. He says, you get it. You get it. You get that my son Jesus Christ died so that you can have this opportunity. And Jesus is saying, yes, yes, dear brother. Yes, dear sister. Come to me. I died. I hung on the cross. I had my body broken for you so that you can come not with your head down, but with your head lifted high, knowing that I am your righteousness. I am your identity. I am your security. I am the one who makes you right with God. Some of us, we just struggle because we, All of us in some ways think too highly of ourselves. Some of us, we struggle and it comes out in this overt self-centeredness, arrogance. Others of us, it comes out in self-pity. Um, the gospel speaks to both. To the one who's arrogant, it says, Jesus had to die for you. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. And so those who are struggling with self-pity, the gospel speaks to us and says, Jesus died for you. Jesus died for you. He loves you. Lift up your head. You don't have to waddle and who you think you're not or what you haven't become. You don't have to live up to your own expectations or the expectations of others in a way that gets you on this hamster wheel of approval. You can rest in me, Ephesians 1, and experience my love today right now. I'm telling you, uh, just a shot of just love as I sat in that chair and realized that the things that I was stressing about are things that 
that God is not stressing about for me. (laughs) And you have access to that every day, every minute of the day when you set your affections on the things that are above. What voice do you need to allow the gospel to cut through for you to experience the presence of God today? What script? You are a priest of the Most High. You don't have to go through a priest. You are the priesthood of believers. You are a priest of the Most High. You have full access to God. You are free. There is now, therefore, no condemnation. There's no condemnation. What would your life look like today? What would this afternoon look like if you just simply prayed to God and said, Lord, help me to believe that, that I am free in Christ. Some of us in here, we are held in bondage not by the expectations of others and not simply by the expectations of, uh, of, of our, our own standard, but honestly, it shows up in the fact that we We don't forgive ourselves. Ever heard someone say that? Man, I know you've forgiven me. I just can't forgive myself. And what's happening there when we say we can't forgive ourselves? We are putting ourselves above our great high priest. Jesus is like, "I, I never told you to forgive yourself. I told you to come to me and I will forgive you. Since when did you forgiving yourself become more powerful than me forgiving you? Look to Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. When we don't forgive ourselves, we are not looking to his once and for all sacrifice that he made for us. Instead, we're essentially saying, I have to work myself to be approved by God and by others. Their sins are no more. You are forgiven in Christ. Rest in that. Jesus is the goat. See, y'all thought I was talking about Michael Jordan being in the number one spot. Ha, Jesus joked you. Bringing it back around, Amen. Brian will never be able to outscore Jesus. Hallelujah. He took 39 stripes for me. Hallelujah. 40. But yeah, anyway. No, he, he is the goat. Or the lamb. Or the lion. You get the point. Let's pray. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn in Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit SojournChurch.com slash Midtown.